0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Grace and peace to you. Uh, We are continuing our series on worship this morning. Again, that is not worship um, generally, as in relation to our entire lives, but specifically as in this, the church's assembly. Now, the reason for this series is because this assembly, believe it or not, is the most important thing that we do as a church. It all starts here. This is the spring from which everything else flows. Worship, when it is done right, transforms the rest of the church. Remember that image that we've been returning to again and again throughout the series. Um, Maybe the, 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 the chief example is in Revelation 22, where the River, clear as crystal, the river of life flows from the throne of God, and it refreshes everything around it. Here we come before the throne, we worship God, and that river of living water flows out to the rest of our life as a church. So we're working here in concentric circles. We're beginning with worship, that is our assembly, then we're extending outward, to our community, that is our life together. That'll be the next sort of series that we occupy ourselves with. And then still further, we'll move out into mission, the advancement of the gospel. And now each one of these things builds upon the other, but it has to start with worship. Renewal begins in the house of God and proceeds outward. And I hope that process, I pray that process has begun since we have started this series, that the scriptural vision has begun to stir your heart for what we are doing here and what this is all about. Now, what is that scriptural vision? And it is that our assembly, that this meeting is the time and place where we draw near to God. That through the priestly mediation and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that he leads us in worship into the most holy place. In other words, this gathering is not an ordinary gathering, or a mere human enterprise, an undertaking of flesh and blood. Rather, it is divine worship where sinful and earthly creatures such as ourselves are invited into the throne room above to taste, as the author of Hebrews says, the powers of the age to come. No ordinary thing, no small or insignificant thing is done when we gather for worship. Now what does the church assemble for? That was the question that we answered last week. This assembly is so important to the Christian faith because it's about three things. One, it's about drawing near to God. That is, it is the time and place where we meet together in worship and service. Second, it's about encouraging one another, where we come together from our desperate or or, or scattered and different lives, where we come together as one body to encourage one another, to spur one another along in love and good deeds. And then three, it's about witness. Outsiders are welcome when the church gathers so that they may know and understand what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. So there's a vertical dimension, we commune with God. There is a horizontal dimension, we encourage one another. And there is an outward dimension, we witness to non-believers. Those are the purposes of our assembly, and that's what we covered last week, This week, we're taking a look at the principles of our assembly, that is, the basic convictions that shape and guide our worship. Now, these are not my principles. They're not your principles. They're not the principles of our church tradition or of our culture. They are the principles that come from Holy Scripture. How we worship is not up to us. Again, it's not a human affair where we can do as we please. God sets the agenda. We come to him on his terms, and he does not come to us on ours. And so those terms and principles are as follows. Worship, so what we'll talk about this morning, is covenant renewal. That's one. It's centered on the gospel. Two. It's corporate. Three. It is a dialogue. Four. It's participatory. Five and it gathers and scatters six. So those are the three things this morning. And by the end of the sermon, you should have an understanding of why we do what we do when we come together, but also how to enter into it more deeply, how to show up to the church's assembly and receive something from it and participate in it. So I'd like to begin with this idea of covenant renewal. Now, do you guys remember, we just read it, the first church service recorded in the scriptures? It's Exodus 24. And it takes place there at the base of Mount Sinai. God led his people out of slavery, through the wilderness, for the specific and deliberate purpose of gathering them before him in worship at Mount Sinai. Again, if you look at the Exodus narrative, what Moses says to Pharaoh again and again is, not just let my people go, but let my people go that they may come to the wilderness and hold a feast to me, or that they may serve me, or that they may worship me. What happens at Mount Sinai is the point of God's deliverance of His people. And that gathering there at the base of Mount Sinai is called the Day of Assembly, Deuteronomy 18, 16. Literally, the day of church. Remember back to our first sermon, that is what church means. It's simply the word assembly. And so because what happens there at the base of Mount Sinai is the first quote-unquote church service, It sets the tone for the rest of services. It gives us an idea of what we're doing here and what this is all about. So, what does it teach us? Well, I think the principal thing that it teaches us is that the church's assembly, what we do here, is about the covenant. It's about the covenant that we share with God. Now, let's do a little bit of groundwork. What is a covenant? Now, first and foremost, a covenant, we find them all throughout the Bible. A covenant is a relationship. It's a relationship, meaning it's more than a contract uh, because contracts contain promises, but they're impersonal and non-relational. A business contract is not the same thing as a marriage covenant. A committed relationship, um, it's not the same thing, because a covenant is more about securing agreement. It's more about trying to find some sort of agreement between two parties that might not otherwise be on the same page. And so what God has entered into with his people, with us, is a covenant relationship. He loves us and he cares for us, and he has committed himself to us, and that commitment is called covenant. God's commitment to his people is called a covenant. And second, a covenant relationship includes binding promises and regulations. Again, uh, marriage is the closest analogy. When the husband and wife gather together to be married, They make promises to one another to love and to cherish one another until they are parted by death. And in his covenant with his people, God makes promises to us. I will be your God and we make promises to him. We will be your people. He promises to provide all good things for us and we take an oath to honor and obey him. Now, we often fail and break our end of the covenant, but God cannot fail. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 13. So if the closest analogy to this covenant between God and his people is marriage, then the closest analogy to what's happening around Mount Sinai is a marriage ceremony. God and his people have gathered together to confirm their covenant relationship with one another. So as we mentioned earlier, the first worship service is all about the covenant relationship between God and his people. So how is this covenant confirmed? Well, first, what we find in Exodus 24 is it's confirmed through something like vows. Moses who is called the mediator of the covenant is essentially the officiant who performs the covenant ceremony he stands between god and the people and leads the ceremony so he ascends to the mountain where god dwells and there atop the mountain he receive he receives god's words so this ceremony begins in exodus 19 and then chapters 20 21 and 23 are all about Moses receiving the words of the Lord. After he's received them, he comes down to the people and he reads them in front of them. And upon hearing the words of the Lord, the people basically say, I do. Exodus 24.3, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. We are going to enter into this covenant. You will be our God. And later, Moses writes these words down, and he calls it the book of the covenant. And he'll read them again before the ceremony's over. And second, the covenant is confirmed through sacrifice. Again, Moses, the mediator, or the officiant, offers up sacrifice, and then he takes the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkles half on the altar, and then he sprinkles half on the people, saying, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, Exodus 24, 8. Now, the blood cleanses the people, and what it does is it seals the covenant between God and his people. It's a bit like the rings and the kiss in a marriage ceremony today. It's what seals the covenant. And lastly, this covenant service ends in a reception. It ends in a covenant meal. Moses and chosen representatives from the people are invited up the mountain to eat and drink in God's presence. They saw God, the scripture says, and they ate and drank, Exodus twenty four eleven. This is the culmination of that first worship service. And what it is, this meal, is a sign or an expression of fellowship. Because we know a meal is always more than a meal. It's never just about eating food to sustain ourselves. It's about fellowship. It's about relationship. And so this meal that the elders of Israel get to share in God's presence is a sign of the covenant relationship that they now share with God, their creator and their redeemer. So the first, first church service was all about the covenant, and so it is today. Our assembly is an expression of our covenant relationship with God. Again, to go back to the marriage analogy, think of our assembly as a vowel renewal ceremony. You know how couples do that from time to time. After 20 or 30 or 40 years, they'll get together, maybe in private or with loved ones, and they'll renew their vows with one another. Now, God has already entered into covenant with us. The night in the upper room when Jesus took the elements of the Passover supper and he transformed them into the Lord's Supper. But specifically, he took the blood, or the cup, rather, And he repeated the words that we read here. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant. So we're not re-entering into a covenant relationship with God when we gather, but we're renewing that relationship. That's why when we get together, the book of the covenant is read. That is God's word. It's taught before you. And in the book of the covenant, God reminds us who he is and what he's done, and what he promises to do, and what he wants from us. And we, as God's people, hear it. We receive it. We understand it, and we respond in obedience and love. God reaffirms his covenant commitment to us, and we reaffirm ours to him. And then as a sign of this covenant, this relationship that we share with God, We share a meal together, that is communion. We eat and drink in his presence. So worship is about covenant renewal. It's an expression of our covenant relationship with God. And again, in the scriptures, there's a catchphrase, I've already said it, that's associated with the covenant. You find it from the beginning to the end. Literally, Revelation closes with some of these words, I will be their God and they will be my people. Those are the words of the covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So our assembly revolves around that truth. God reaffirms his love and his steadfast commitment to us, that he is indeed our God. And we, his people, we promise to love and serve him, declaring that, yes, we are indeed your people. So it's this mutual back and forth between God and us. Worship is about covenant renewal. I would love to say more, but we don't have time. I have six points and not three, so that means we need to move. Second one is that worship is centered upon the gospel. That's the second principle of our assembly, that it's centered upon the gospel. It's about returning to those events in history upon which our salvation rests, the incarnation death, and resurrection of Jesus. Worship begins with and focuses on what God has done to save his people. In other words, it's about the well that our worship draws from, the source that we go back to and that we receive nourishment from again and again and again. Now, that source is not the talking points or the ideologies of our day. That source is not whatever political hobby horse. It's not our own works or commitment. The source that the church draws from to renew its life is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. Now, Israel's worship teaches us this. If you look at the Old Testament, their festivals, their pilgrimages, their songs, the whole scope of their worship commemorated and retold the story of Jesus the exodus how god rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm in other words for them the exodus wasn't something that happened back then to be forgotten now but it was the continual basis of their worship it was the well to which they constantly returned and so the exodus event never ceased to shape their calling and identity as a people. Now for us, that well is the gospel, which surpasses the Exodus event in every way. As the Apostle Paul wants to say to the Corinthians, who are so enamored with the wisdom of the world, with the things they see from the grand rhetoricians of their day, Paul says, you guys have it all wrong. 2 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, And him crucified. In other words, what Paul is telling the Corinthians is that he has nothing to offer them that is of value except the death and resurrection of Christ. There is no other well to draw from, no other source that could nourish and sustain them as a church. Not philosophy, nor ethics, nor mere exhortation, nor anything else. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Paul only spoke about the cross or that he only preached evangelistic messages. Rather, what it means is that all that he taught, all that he said, all that ever came out of his mouth in the assembly of the Corinthians was tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He couldn't talk about doctrine as some sort of abstract and ethereal thing, systematic theology, He couldn't talk about discipleship as if it was just this thing that was up to us or fellowship or anything else without relating it to the death and resurrection of Christ. And so when we gather, the gospel is to be at the center of everything the reading, the preaching, the music, the conversation, all of it, because that's the source from which we draw. For instance, just look at the New Testament. Take take a survey of of the letters and how they're constructed. The gospel stands at the center of everything. The whole New Testament is one long interpretation of Jesus' death and resurrection and what it means for our lives. The the, the, the epistles will, will say again and again, God has done this in the gospel through Jesus Christ. He's destroyed the principalities and the powers. He's redeemed the world. He's forgiven us of our sins. Therefore, this is how you ought to live in light of it. One draws upon the other. Our discipleship, the kind of people that we are called to be, makes no sense apart from the gospel, such that if it's disconnected from it, the the Christian life loses its source of power. If our worship is not rooted in the gospel, it's not going to renew us and restore us. It's just going to cast you back upon your own strength, which is not going to do anything for you. So the gospel is the basis of everything. It's the source that sustains and empowers our worship in the assembly. So listen, we, want, we don't want to praise God for how good and nice he is. Right? Sort of these general, sort of abstract worship songs that could be be sung to your boyfriend or girlfriend. We want to praise him for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to hear preaching that is not about this particular cause or this whatever agenda out in the world, but we want to hear preaching that is about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our lives. And we want to have our prayers, not about this or that minor thing, but the gospel that it would take a deeper hold of us, and that it would transform our lives. So, worship is about covenant renewal. Worship is about the gospel. And next, worship is corporate. Our assembly is a corporate meeting, meaning that when the church gathers, it's not primarily an individual affair where we come to have a private encounter with God. Instead, it's a communal encounter, where we gather before him as an expression of our covenant relationship with one heart, with one mind, and with one voice. It's an expression of our covenant identity, again, the covenant relationship that we share in. So if we return to that assembly at Sinai, it was not about individuals and their personal relationship with God. It was about God's covenant with his people. Moses read the book of the covenant to them, And the scripture says, Exodus 24, 3, all the people answered with one voice. Now, that's not to say that God is not concerned with us as individuals, because obviously he is. Rather, it's to say that our corporate gathering is about our corporate relationship with God. Our corporate gathering is about our corporate relationship with God. Now listen, our secular society does its best to make religion a private matter. It's something personal, they say. It's between the individual and their God. It's not welcome out in culture or politics or any area of common life. And so what happens is there's a division between the public and the private, between the secular and the sacred, between the inward and the outward. But in reality, no such division exists. Christianity from its beginning has always been a public matter. Jesus is not a personal Lord. He is not a private Lord. He is not a Lord of inner and personal dispositions. Rather, he is Lord without qualification or modifier. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And thus, our assembly is not a private, closed-off assembly a cultish gathering where we perform secret rituals. It's a public meeting. And anyone is welcome because Jesus is not merely our Lord. He's not merely our possession. He is everyone's Lord, and he possesses everything. And so we don't come here to express this private, personal relationship, but the covenant relationship that we share with him, to confess that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and all things. So... Worship is also a, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the point, it's, someone tell me, it's a corporate matter. It's a corporate matter. And then lastly, or not lastly, but the fourth principle is that worship is a dialogue. And I want to spend a little bit of time here. Worship is a dialogue. It's a living conversation between God and his people. Meaning worship is not a religious program, nor is it an entertaining event. God speaks to us in what he has already spoken, his word, the holy scriptures. And we respond to him in our prayers, bringing our praises and our needs before him. So it's not a monologue, meaning it's never one-sided. Instead, the pattern that you find in Scripture is always revelation and then response. God speaks and his people answer. Revelation and response. God is always the initiator of this conversation. He invites us into his presence and he tells us about himself, who he is and what he's done. He tells us about his love about his mercy, about his righteousness, and about his wrath. He reminds us what he has done in Christ and the Spirit to restore the world. And he tells us how we should respond to this truth, what kind of people we should be. And God's word is more than mere information or facts. God's word is his personal presence. It's the means by which he draws near to us. Again, it's not a one way street. God speaks and he graciously invites our response. Now, first and foremost, ours is a response of obedience. God speaks, and first and foremost, the way that we are to respond is in obedience. Again, at the Sinai assembly, Moses read. God's word to God's people, and they responded, Exodus 24, 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That is the proper response to the word of God. Now listen, it's a mutual conversation, but it's not a conversation among equals. The proper response is always an affirmation of our obedience to the word of God. So, when the word is read or preached in our assembly, our response can never be neutral or anodyne. That's painless. It can never be something that doesn't summon us or require something from us because God's word is not a dead word. It's living and active, and it accomplishes the purpose for which He sent it. And so, it summons us to action, it summons us to obedience. Now listen, I know this is not our style at CBC. Many of us would consider ourselves recovering Catholics or uh, hear from liturgical or ritualistic churches, but, but some form of verbal response to the word is necessary. If you're in the military and a superior officer gives orders to you and you're a private, how are you supposed to respond? In swift obedience, yes, sir, right away, sir, carry it out, get to work. It's not a matter of deliberation. It's not a matter of consideration. A superior has spoken, and you have a job to do. God's word bears God's authority. We're not here to hear an interesting talk. We're not here to, I don't know, whatever, When we are addressed, we must respond with a decisive amen. As the prophet Samuel, the night that he was there in the temple, he went to Eli and said, I'm hearing this voice, and I don't know what it is. Is it you? And Eli says, no, it's the Lord. If you hear it again, respond this way. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. We come as God's servants standing at attention. Now, some churches will say, the reader will say, this is God's word, and people will respond, thanks be to God. Now, I'm not saying we have to do that, but some sort of affirmation is necessary. Because not just any word calls us, not just any word speaks to us. It's the word of God. Now, obedience is our first response. But that's not all that God wants from us. In our dialogue with him, we are to bring three things. Our praise, our confession, and our lament. In our dialogue with God, we're to bring three things, our praise, our confession, and our lament. In other words, we're to bring our entire lives. Many times I've prayed before service, and I won't probably ever do this again, is that we would come in here with our minds undistracted, right? That we would sort of let go of our concerns and cares of our lives, And the reason I don't want to ever do that again is because I think it sends the wrong message. Namely, that to enter into God's presence, our lives have to be left at the door. Instead, our lives, our praises, our confessions, and our lament are part of our worship. It's part of the conversation that we have with God. When we come together as God's people, we're invited to bring our stories of goodness of beauty, of abundance into God's presence, of what we've experienced in this week, and to praise God's name for all the good things that have come our way. We come to offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving, enter his courts with thanksgiving. But we also bring our failure and our rebellion. We don't conceal those things when we come together as God's people, but we acknowledge them to God. And also we bring our lament. This is something that If out of those two gets marginalized the most, we bring our lament, that is, our stories of sadness, of confusion, and even anger toward God. We don't check these things at the door. We bring them into God's presence. This is part of our dialogue, and it's to these things that God speaks. And he speaks a word of truth, correcting, or a word of comfort, healing, or a word of forgiveness or a word that comes to strengthen us. We bring our lives to him and God speaks and things are changed. Do you remember Asaph, Psalm 73? Do you remember his complaint? Asaph was envious of the wicked. Asaph was a righteous man, but he was destitute and he suffered. But the wicked, they prospered. Nothing could stand in their way. They tread over the top of poor, innocent, righteous people. They had everything they wanted. They were in good health. And Asaph began to wonder if it was worth it. Psalm 73, verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. What is the point of any of this? But Asaph says there was a turning point. Something happened and everything changed for him. And it was, he says, verse 17 of Psalm 73, When I came into the sanctuary of God. Asaph brought his life. And when his story was connected with the truth of God and what he's done, things began to change. And his vision was restored. And that envy he had for the wicked evaporated. And he said, Lord, you are my portion. You are my portion. I want nothing but to be with you and to dwell in the place where your glory is. So his vision was restored in God's presence, and then he understood. It's the same thing that happened with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember, they were leaving Jerusalem because Jesus, whom they supposed to be the Messiah, was just crucified, executed by the authority of the Roman Empire and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Their hopes were dashed, and so they walked away, leaving it all behind, and little did they know Jesus they didn't recognize him appeared beside them walking on the road and he asked them what are you guys talking about and they said are you the only one who has not heard what's happened in these past couple days and so they told him their sad story about how this prophet mighty in word indeed was supposed to redeem the people but he didn't and then Jesus he engages them with the word He says, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he takes them through a Bible study, beginning with Moses, all the way through the Psalms and the prophets and so on and so forth, and he explains to them why these events had to happen and what they had missed. And then he acted as if he was going to go further, and they begged him to stop, and so he stayed, and they had a meal together. And at that meal, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and as he was distributing the bread to them, their eyes were opened. And they saw that it was the risen Lord. And then he vanished from their sight. And those formerly depressed, despondent, confused disciples were transformed. They ran back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus is risen. In their dialogue with the risen Christ, notice the two things there, word and table. When God's people get together, those things are never missing. The word and the table, they were transformed. So in our assembly, we bring our praises, we bring our confessions, and we bring our laments to God in Christ. And he speaks his living word, and he renews, and he restores us. It's a living dialogue, not a religious program or an entertaining service. But also worship is participatory. Just a few more here. Worship is participatory. So if our assembly is a conversation, then it's also participatory, meaning it's not a product that we come to sit back and consume, but a service that each one of us participates in. Simply, the goal is participation over passivity. Now, passive worship is worship that is done for us. It's an activity that is performed on our behalf. It's what happens up front on the stage. It's what's led by the professionals, quote-unquote, and our responsibility is to recline and to listen and to absorb. Now, that sends us in the wrong direction spiritually. It teaches us to become consumers. We either enjoy or critique the service from a safe distance. So it's like going to the movies or to the theater or to the concert hall. It's worship as entertainment. It's worship as something that's put on for us, and we receive. Now, in a lot of ways, that type of passive worship that is prevalent today is very much like Medieval Catholic worship. Worship in the medieval Catholic church was something that was done by the priests on the altar, while the rest of the church watched on. And the Mass, right, that's the service, it was performed entirely in Latin, which almost none but the most educated understood. So you'd come to a service that was performed by the priests, you sat back and watched in the language that you didn't understand. And communion was only celebrated by the priests. They drank the wine and ate the bread, while everyone else shared in what's called ocular communion. Ocular, the Latin word coming from the word oculus, meaning eye, meaning ocular communion. We do it, you watch on with your eyes. Now, the reformers had major problems with this, that worship was something that was done for the people, on behalf of the people, and not something that they participated in. The whole deal with the Reformation was how should we worship? Now, in the Old Covenant, worship was indeed something performed by the priests. The people participated, but to a low degree. In the New Covenant, that changes. Jesus makes everyone in his church a priest meaning that they are participants in the act of worship and not merely bystanders. We have been made, Peter says, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's just two points I want to make here, one for you and one for me. On your part, come prepared to participate. The consumer bystander mentality is enculturated into us at every turn. Resist it. Come prepared to worship, to engage, to offer up acceptable sacrifice to God and to encourage your brothers and sisters. That's what we're here for, something we do for one another. And on my part, we're going to try and build in more participatory elements in our service. That is more time to breathe and slow down, to make room for, for participation, that the service doesn't bulldoze anyone and we have a chance to participate in the act of worship. So lastly now, worship gathers and scatters. It gathers and scatters. Our assembly brings us together in worship before God and then it sends us back out into the world on mission. It's the heartbeat of the church. And now the heartbeat of every human has two phases. There's the diastolic phase where it relaxes and the heart fills with blood and then there's the systolic phrase where it contracts and it pumps blood out to the rest of the body. Now in its diastolic function worship gathers us from all the extremities of our community. It brings us into one place where we meet with God. Where we enter into as the author of Hebrews says the most holy place to hear God's word and to eat from his table and then in its systolic phase worship does the opposite and it scatters us out into the world to mingle with it like leaven and dough to give it savor like salt that we might radiate like light or to use another bodily metaphor it's like breathing in and out our assembly We come to breathe in God's mercy and grace, to be renewed and restored, and then we breathe out commission. Now the example here is the prophet Isaiah. He was caught up into worship in heaven. It's a remarkable encounter. The seraphim, heavenly beings, smoke filling the temple, an earthquake that shook the frame of the foundation. And it ends with a commission. Isaiah, his mouth is touched with the burning coal by the angel and he's forgiven. And the Lord speaks and says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, chapter 6, verse 8, here I am, send me. The point here is that we cannot truly encounter God and remain neutral. That is, we cannot receive his grace and kindness for ourselves and not be motivated to share it with others. A heart that takes in but that never pumps out is a dead heart. This diastolic function of worship is never without its systolic function. So every worship assembly ends in commission. Go. We are invited to gather in the most holy place, but it's not time to stay there. That time comes at the end when Jesus returns. And he gathers us up to be with him and the Father and the Spirit forever. That's when we can rest in the Holy of Holies. But till now, our lives are marked by this pattern. Up the mountain, down again. Into the sacred space, out into the world. Grace and peace for ourselves and mission for our community. What we are given is not meant to be hoarded. It's meant to be shared and dispersed abroad to the world. So worship, I'm not going to try and rehearse those. Worship, these are the principles of worship. This is what we do. But it ends this covenant renewal ceremony with the meal before the Lord. So I'd just like to invite you now to prepare your heart. This is a meal of fellowship, a meal of joy, a meal of thanksgiving for what the Lord has done. Let's partake in a beautiful and worthy manner. So if you do that now, I'll lead us in just a